Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. This is episode 254. We're recording this live on August 11th, 2022. I'm your host, Nick Rome, and I'm living dangerously because I'm not recording a local copy, but across the internet from me is Mr. Barry Kirby. Barry, how are you? I'm fine. I'm also not recording a local copy either. Do I need to be scared? No, no. As long as we're coming in loud and clear, I think we're okay. We got a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about The Line the city of the future. We also got some questions from the community about managers hiring unqualified researchers, where to discuss uh, minutiae of daily work with more experienced colleagues in the industry, and we'll discuss the most interesting problems or solutions we have ever worked on. Barry, I hope that didn't take you by surprise uh, and you're well prepared for that. But first, we got some programming notes. Barry, what is the latest from 1202? So over at 1202, we've been discussing the rail industry with Nora Balf, uh, who's the HFI uh, manager in, or the human factors um, manager in Irish Rail. And that's been a really popular episode where we've been learning about the breadth of stuff that she's been getting involved with. But then on Monday, a new episode comes to light, and it's actually about the perils and procedures uh, of how to publish a book or in spe- specifically how we share our knowledge in the human factors domain through human factors publishing with ex-president of the CIHF, Robert Bridger. So that goes live on Monday, and um, hopefully everybody will want to bit, pick up their typewriter or word processor or pencil and start sharing their knowledge in being able to um, and publishing their own books. I hope I'm inspired to write a book by that. Uh, but anyway, we know why you are all here. Let's get into the news. Yes, this is the part of the show all about human factors news. Barry, this story is incredible. Can you can you let us know what our story this week is? So this week we are talking about uh, HRH Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman announces designs for the line, the city of the future in Neom. So the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia recently announced the design of the line, a, a civilizational revolution, which is easy for you to say, uh, that puts humans first. It's supposed to be providing an unprecedented urban living experience while preserving the surrounding nature. The proposed designs of the line embody how urban communities can thrive in an environment free from roads, cars, and emissions. The city will run on 100% renewable energy and prioritize people's health and well-being over transportation and infrastructure. It puts nature ahead of development and will contribute to preserving 95% of Neom's land. The announcement reveals the most important characteristic of the line, and that is that the city's only 200 metres wide, but it will be 170 kilometres long and extend 500 metres above sea level. The line will eventually accommodate 9 million residents and will be built on a footprint of 34 square kilometres, which is unheard of when compared to other cities of similar capacity. Residents will have access to all facilities in the line within a five-minute walk, in addition to a high-speed rail with an end-to-end transit of 20 minutes. The line offers a new approach to urban design, the idea of layering city functions vertically, while giving people the possibility of moving seamlessly in three dimensions, up, down, or across. To access them is a concept referred to as zero-gravity urbanism. 
Different from just tall buildings, this concept layers public parks, pedestrian areas, schools, homes, and places for work, so one can move effortlessly to reach all daily needs within five minutes. It's an ideal climate all year round, and that will ensure that residents can enjoy surrounding nature when travelling on foot. So Nick, would you live in a vertical city in the middle of the desert? Such future, much wow. Uh, I don't know if I would live there, but this is certainly awesome. Uh, I am a complete sucker for futurism, and I really love this story so much. Uh, Future cities built around humans are just really cool. Um, Where I get really sort of down in the dumps is, uh, or bogged down, whatever you want to call it, is when I think about all the hurdles that we have to make in order to get there. Uh, there's a lot of sort of technical advances, uh, a lot of sort of societal questions that we need to answer. Um, and I'm sure with enough time and resources, we'll get there. But man, I'm really hopeful that that stuff uh, like this will become a reality someday. Barry, um, what about you? What, what are your kind of initial thoughts on this thing? So this idea of this experimental city um, within an experimental region, which is what Neom is, it's it's something that's come together to um, be a catalyst uh, for future thinking and and really drive science and engineering forward. You, If you go on the website, um, then they, they put up loads of videos about how they expect what looks like a barren, featureless desert at the moment. Um, they see it as, uh, as, so, as, a, as a catalyst for doing new things. And actually, they've even got their own Twitter account and things like that, which um, I realized after um, looking up at this and they were, you know, site following them and stuff and, and, and understanding what's going on. But I also suspect, I think there's some interesting challenges um, in going vertical. So if you're going vertical as well as horizontal, what about like connectivity with the rest of the world? Because it, it's saying that it's going to be like sort of a trade center and all that sort of stuff. If you've just got this one um this one vertical structure um and you've got then connect connections with um other trading organizations then how long can it just stay a single line before somebody puts something on the side to make freight loading and unloading easier and then you suddenly start sprawling on the side but i'm sure they're only just technological challenges that will overcome for me i think what i worry about more than anything else is that and what this, what the whole thing premise, the whole premise losses over is, is, is money. Um, this, this, this nirvana um, of, of awesomeness looks brilliant, but it also looks blinking expensive. And does it mean that only the only the uh, the privileged few get to get to live there, whilst the rest of I mean, how many um, science um, uh, futuristic science movies do we have we seen over the years or in fact over the decades that have the nirvana of people living opulent lives and then under the sewers or out in some barren featureless desert, uh, everybody else like you and me go and live because we can't afford to live there. So I think there is, from a technical perspective, amazing. But I think we need to dig into some of the um, some of the broader human factors issues to really uh, yeah. pull it out. I'm, I'm right there with you. So look, like we we understand that this is a, a very future thinking project. Uh, and it's pie in the sky. We understand that. We're going to break it down as if we were trying to figure out some human factors issues with this. Uh, we, you know, we've been hired as human factors engineers to figure out the the lines, human factors problems. So let's talk about them. I think I want to jump in to kind of what was alluded at in the 
pre-show and actually was brought up by Call Me Freckles, Call Me Freckles on Twitch. Um, and I want to bring this up kind of as the first thing. Um, and we're looking at kind of the organization, the society within this, the line. Do, do we call it this line or this, the line? I'm not quite sure. Um, within the line. So the sense of communities within the line, um, where does, so th- there's a couple things going on here, right? If they've built this society, they've built it with this uh, three-dimensional, what do they call it? Zero gravity navigation. Yeah. Uh, and so they built it with this in mind. And ideally you'd have, you know, uh, uh, everything that you need within a certain radius of where you reside. And what that means is that you might have, you know, every X amount of feet or meters uh, within the line, you have sort of a school or a hospital or a grocery store or something like that. Is it repeating? Do they switch it up from community to community? And where does one end and the other begin? Because you can imagine that one school, if you're on this side, you might go to this one. And if you're on this side, you might go to that one, but you might go to the same hospital as somebody else that's kind of close to you. And so there's a bunch of different ways in which these communities, I guess, sort of need to form over time. And will that be natural? Will it be fabricated by the design of the layout? Um, And then really, getting at community here, there's sort of a larger issue. Will some parts of the line come with a premium for real estate, either by the water, by transportation hubs? Uh, those types of things are real considerations that you have to consider, right? I can imagine by by placement on in terms of height, are, are uh, things that are higher above the sea level going to cost more because of the view? There's a lot of things that I'm thinking about from this perspective. There's how does it change sort of the social perceptions of people when you tell somebody you live on the 500th floor, uh, when, when you tell them that you live on the second floor, what, what do people think of you? Does that change how people view you? Does it change how you interact with this society? Um, and it's it's I think it's ripe for the haves versus the have nots, right? Those with more money are higher up, they're closer to the water, um, and status will be immediately understood by where you reside. And that is kind of where I'm thinking at. And I do want to bring in this comment because um, it, it agrees with me on this, and I like comments that agree with me. It says, it's an astounding conceptual feat uh, and certainly is aesthetically pleasing. The carbon footprint and ethical consumption adjacent relations are highly promising. However, I am of the current opinion that this will quickly devolve into an international, uh, sorry, I'm, I, it cut off on me, it, it, an intentionally segregated slash class city, similar to what we see here in the U.S. with districts, 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 oh my God, districts, <laughs> states, counties assessing um, poorer funding, accessing poorer funding, and humanities related resources. Think Snowpiercer. Um, and so that, to me, is sort of the biggest consideration for this like talk about human factors all you want but that is a major major thing that we have to solve before we even start to think about all that stuff barry what are your thoughts on all that yeah i i think it's you could ask yourself is this just innate in human behavior um because no matter how 
equal you make everything um so addressing the um uh, the, the social fabric first they they will all we will find something in this that makes one side slightly better than the other so it could be you know if it's east west face so say like if it because it's a line it, the one side of it might be west facing and the other side east facing so one is either cooler or warmer um just because of the nature of the way the way the sun travels um does that mean that one side is going to be inherently better than the other because of the nature of what it does one side might need more resources to cool it um than the other and therefore be more expensive or, or you know there's going to be some differences amongst it and therefore the people who have more ability and that that might not just be money that might be other resources as well or however these things run out then we do tend to shake ourselves out into some sort of social order no matter how much we try not to do that fundamentally no matter what sort of city or anything like that there is always um, inequality in jobs um, or perceived nature of jobs because somebody's going to have to uh, no matter how much technology you've got you've got somebody's got to clean up um somebody's going to have to make sure that the that the uh, water systems are maintained that the air conditioning systems are maintained that these wonderful transport sit transportation systems maintained and normally we give those uh we class them as less skilled jobs despite the fact i couldn't do most of them um the you know um and that tends to also shake out an order uh, a class order within our society that aside something else you said which i thought was quite interesting was you know the nature of schools um if we're in this organization why do we need central hubs for schools we could distribute schooling completely so your schooling is done in the home um you know if we've got the technology to do that and support it etc etc but then one of the things that we have is, is how to bring people together in 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 meaningful ways that that isn't completely socially engineered um because you want people to find their own relationships and and things like or do we another interesting question um but i think it's going to be it because you cannot um just build a city and and force things to happen there is we as creatures want to generate um relationships we want to generate our own behaviors because no matter how well we try and fit into stuff something always breaks um or you know changes on that that doesn't fit into the norm um and there's loads and loads of films out there that sort of um uh, parody this or, or cover this off but i think that's going to be one of the hardest things to crack yeah. take out the technology is how do people live with people for so long in such a regimented or what what i couldn't perceive as a fairly regimented um building structure right two, two other things that i thought of while we're on this topic of society and culture and all that stuff is you brought up jobs and how some jobs that are often viewed as lesser skilled um they're going to need to have some sort of income that supports them to be able to live in this place to begin with. And so that gives me a little bit of hope that perhaps they're designing with that in mind and that those types of things might be accessible. The other thing that gives me a little bit of hope here, and I think we're, we're maybe a little shy on hope getting into this whole thing uh, <laughs> a little early, right? Is that the, one of the first lines in the press release is that, a civil civilizational revolution. See, there we go. I'm trying it now, Barry, too. A civilizational uh, revolution that puts humans first. That is the very first thing that they say. And so I think 
I would hope that they're already thinking about these types of issues. Does it sort of, um, is it going to be one of those things where you have a, a situation where maybe some people have access to better things? Maybe, but I'm hoping that everything will be relatively equitable. Uh, I, I don't know. Where do you want to go next, Barry? We should really jump into some human factors issues here. Yeah, I th- let's go and hit some of the um, the engineering side of things because it's. I think the the way that we build this is going to be truly fascinating. Um, so the first thing I think, um, and just taking off some of the notes, I, I kind of <laughs> connectivity is is something I think is going to be key to this. So if you've got this this wonderful, literally the line in the sand. It looks really nice in its in its pictures. It's all nicely isolated, and it's like I said, this it's almost Nirvana principle. But how do you get if it's going to be a center for trade and things like that? How do we get on and off it? Uh, because I didn't see in anything like that there that there is um, it, it mentions a, a train within it, you know, a high speed train to get you from end to end in what, what did I say it was twenty minutes? Um, yeah. But where, where do you go off that? So is there going to be a train line going? all the way to the nearest bit of other bit of civilization. If you've got that there, then you're going to have to have some sort of train hub to be able to manage that. And therefore, do you, what, at what point does the engineering of connectivity offend the engineering of the sleek line structure? Um, you could argue that actually a, a train is relatively easy because it could be right at the end of the line. And actually it's almost, you could, from an aesthetic principle, the train line is just a continuation of the line in the sand type thing because it's just like, but what about other forms of transportations? I mean, we've got no cars within it, but you can have cars. Do you need cars to get there? If you're going to have cars to get there for visitors, you know, maybe, maybe not residents, but visitors, then um, where are you going to park the cars? Yeah, where you're going to park the, or where you know you're going to have a, a train yard for for your trains, um, and then you get onto that other uh, one that uh, we that we don't like for the for for the carbon carbon impact, airplanes. Uh, where's where's the nearest airport when you're wanting to get um, goods in and out, particularly food goods and things like that? So, I get in the idea that it said everything was was walkable within it, but I still I think. How do we get over the fact that um, it won't be entirely self-contained? Um, we because even if even if it produces all of its own water, its own food, and things like that from within, because some of that some of the videos and things are saying it will grow grow everything it needs, we still want to um, engage with the rest of the world. So it'd be interesting to see how we build them sort of things in a to be aesthetically pleasing um, to to fit in with that aspiration, but also to make it work within the um within the environment i don't know yeah. have you, have you got any comments on, on how we connect it to the rest of the world yeah i have a ton um especially working in supply chain logistics right there's a ton of things that yeah, i okay. i'm interested about like do, do resources come in to one side of the line or the other um and then is there sort of a multi-leg journey that those products need to take once they've gotten onto the line um and and how does that work uh where you know do you do you distribute it to one end and then it gets on maybe a, a another dedicated uh, high-speed rail that's freight as well and you know you have sort of a hyperloop situation where maybe the freight uh can go uh fast without worrying about damaging any goods i don't know but then that's another thing that you have to think about is 
does everything come in on ship and then the high speed rail takes it to where it needs to go throughout and just kind of drops it off, drops a little more off, drops a little more off. And by the end, um, you're kind of done or how are logistics done on this thing? That's a whole other separate piece of this that you're right. There's the connectivity with the world because there's going to be imports. There's going to be maybe exports. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that if they were growing everything that they need on board, they might have some surplus that they'd want to share with the rest of the world. And so that's another consideration. Yes. You brought up the point of the airport. Is there one airport? This thing is long. Are there two airports? Mm-hmm. You know, what does it look like for having these planes land on top of it? Uh, you know, are they on the sides? Because you brought up that question of, well, once you start building out, It'd be very easy to start building outwards. And then is it just a city at that point? Because you can keep yeah, expanding. And so I'm, talking, I'm thinking. Just to jump yeah. in there, you couldn't. There's no way you'd be able to land a modern, anything useful on top of it. Because the, the it's only 200 meters wide. Right. And so. There's no turnaround. <laughs> it just be no land and take off. Well, even then, landing. If you try and land um, a seven forty seven on there, for example, they haven't. They probably won't have enough room width wise. Um, oh yeah, to be able to land and get off it. <laughs> um, well, that's what I'm saying. Is you land and then it's a straight line. You just take off right again. You know, for, it'd be a different way to do an airport. It's almost like you land uh, and then you dock up to um, one terminal, and then that. That's what I'm saying is you need sort of multiple airports on top. And then it's like there's the whole structural integrity of the mm. the line. Can it support, you know, 747s landing on it every day? I don't know. Are they at the are they at the ends? And then is that part of the line? I don't know. Right. There's all these other questions. But it's interesting, though, that a lot of the no, – we'll, we, I recognize I'm butting in on your stuff here. But the no, a lot of the stuff that we're really hitting here is not functional. It's all aesthetic because they've given us that aesthetic idea of the line in the sand, the the silver shine line. We're trying to almost force everything down into that aesthetic. And given that we're, we're kind of struggling already, and we've barely got into it. Does that largely lead you to believe already that it's impossible? No, I don't think so. I think I think some of these. No, I, if you stick an airport at one end and a port at the other end. I think that would be sufficient enough as long as there's enough throughput for those, right? And you have some sort of interconnected freight system that then takes something from one end to the other because uh, things travel differently. And so if you have both of those, one at either end, and you take the high-speed rail to the end to get on a passenger airplane, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Um, I think we're now kind of one airport might serve this community. Because if you think about it, right, like these international airports are located in in um, urban hubs. And so you have a lot of people that could potentially pass through there. I think it could support it, honestly, if you put an airport at one end, a port at the other end. And honestly, we've seen some of the port and some of the uh, concept art. Go look at that if you haven't already. You can see boats kind of parked up to it um, and they kind of go. That's why it extends so far out into the ocean is because you have so many boats just like lined up on the outside of it i mean i guess i mean one thing the art does show i guess is we've i get we've been talking about people living there but what about the tourism sector um mm. does is it a tourist destination um as much as anything else as well which is which is interesting 
Yeah, I wrote in the notes, this would be an incredible location to go study abroad at because it would be oh, just yeah, yeah, yeah. an entire, uh, you know, if they have a university, there would be an entirely different way to think about communities, uh, an entirely different perspective on the world, really, because you're in this community that is largely vertical in the way that you navigate it. And if you're coming from another place where you navigate horizontally or from the states where we largely depend on surface transportation to get us from a suburb to a city center, that is a completely different way to think about things. I want to talk about the vertical city aspect of it, too, because this is sort of another thing that I'm really interested in. This is a vertical city. How do you travel vertically? Is it elevators, escalators, all the above, stairs, of course, but how do you make these things accessible? If it is elevators involved, is it going to be enough for the throughput of the people? Um, and, and what about population growth? Is it going to be enough 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line? Is this going to be enough or is infrastructure going to fail sometime in the future? Because you can't really add much more to it when you're considering sort of this artificial limitation of the 620 feet, mm-hmm. I don't know so what was it is in meters, but it's it's just shy of two football fields wide uh, for for those in the states. And so, <laughs> if you're looking at that right, there's not much room that you can sort of reconfigure some of this stuff for for more of that um, movement uh, infrastructure. And so that's that's another sort of concern there that that I'm looking at. Uh, what else, Barry? I have I have more stuff that I want to get into with verticality in a minute, but yeah, yeah, no, I think it's all it, this point's connected to verticality is a lot of the stuff because that will heavily lean itself on technology because it's um, what do you say it's 500 meters high, so what five foot football fields high? All right, um, that's quite a lot. So just using stairs stairs when you incorporate them into a um into a into a building take up a lot of space mm-hmm. um when you when you put the, when you put them in no matter how no matter how you put them in and they've got to be um available for for everybody what ha- so that that's why i think lifts um whatever whatever description are going to be used quite a lot what happens when they go wrong mm-hmm. and in fact this whole city is um really leaning very heavily on technology. So technology in the water, technology in the air to reduce the carbon footprint on solar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what about the redundancy? What about what about the fallback systems? Um, do we need them? If, the, if this is the place where people are, are living, I mean, we're struggling at the moment. We're in the middle of, um, of the second heat wave here in the UK. Um, and we don't have things like air conditioning, um, really, um, in, in homes and things like that. And we're already struggling. Um, you know, we don't, we, we, we low water reserves and all that sort of stuff because we don't really have the redundancy at the moment to deal with the temperatures and the, the, um, the conditions that we're dealing with. So if this stuff falls over and you're in the middle of a desert, you you haven't got the air conditioning to keep keep you cool. You haven't got the water, um, cooling and the water cleaning because the technology has gone down for whatever reason. Um, how do you fit all of that redundancy in? And, it, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. I think really it's just got to be focus on as much as the technology itself needs for needs good development and development from a good user perspective, so does the fallback systems. The fallback systems need to be developed sympathetically um, 
and have as much effort put into them as as what the um, what the main systems do. Yeah, I want to talk about verticality again. Um, and and you you've mentioned sort of how do you get around uh, the redundancy of systems from from the promotional art. It looks like everybody has uh, anti gravity boots that they can just jump from one thing to another. Uh, it's rather fantastical. So Absolutely. that's um, that's clearly the the solution there. But uh, no, let's let's talk a little bit about what this means in terms of um, safety because you might be safe from automobile accidents. Uh, but now there's sort of this incredible need for more handrails. Uh, don't let the, don't let the empire, uh, build this because there's not going to be any handrails and there's going to be a lot of <laughs> accidental death. So look, I, I, I have in my notes, cool facts. They're not cool facts. They're in fact deaths, but I do want to bring this up and there's some reasons why this might not be the greatest metric to bring in, but, um, you know, ultimately let's make it safer for vertical navigation. This is from the CDC. In 2020, you had 42,000 deaths from falling and 40,000 deaths from motor vehicle accidents in 2020. So now you're getting rid of sort of that uh, that motor vehicle accidents, but you're also introducing all that verticality. And uh, these are accidental falls. Um, and in a lot of cases, one of the reasons why this is not such a great metric is because you have sort of the aging population that uh, falls and can often end up in very serious uh, medical issues because of those falls. It's not quite the same, but accidental falls are a huge reason why people get hurt. Uh, that's just looking at deaths from falls and accidental falls uh, is, is like I said, one of those main reasons people who operate on the telephone lines or, or broadband internet lines or whatever the, the lines elevated above we have the right. Those people fall out of those buckets all the time. Um, people who work in elevated spaces, on roofs, uh, on construction sites. Falls are a real issue. And now you're having an entire public navigate through them. And is it really going to be much different from perhaps a situation where you have maybe one floor, you know, kind of this atrium situation? I'm, I, the design solution that I'm thinking of is in order to prevent somebody from falling to their death in an atrium, you just tier it, right? So on the interior, you kind of have these tiered floors where one extends out a little bit further than the one above. And so it makes it less likely that you're going to fall all the way down. But then again, you only have so much room to do that. Do you have a base that extends upwards about halfway and you have sort of all the infrastructure pieces down below that thing? And then you have sort of the last half exposed to the elements where you have that tiered system. I think that's what they're going for. That's the that's the sense that I got. But falling risk. Let's let's fix that problem. <laughs> what else yeah, you got I mean, here? Well, I mean that's interesting, isn't it? Because again, we having looked at the art and, and the video and stuff like that, you sort of think it, it is going to be this open, free thing all the way through. But it, sensibly, it probably can't be. Um, you're going to have different bits because otherwise, there's going to be a lot of space taken up with just nothingness, with just air, because you're in between floors and it's a central core. More realistically, the chances are it's going to be the same as some sort of high-rise building that is 500 feet in the air. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, and then just stretch it really long, um, you know, and or, or put many of them next to each other in 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 a line. Um, so I don't think it's going to be massively massively dissimilar from that. And you'll have some interesting bits where you've got some big open areas, but you will have some bits as well that are 
sort of really closed and dense because that's where all your water pu- water purification happens or that's where all the air conditioning is happening or that's where all your solar panel generation is going into and you know so there's going to be massive variety of of the density of of the building all the way through um so i don't think you know it sort of lends you to think that you'll be able to stand at one end and see all the way down the 170 odd kilometers um of the line and I, I don't think that'll be the case um but fundamentally well, off the other side though you get off the other side for for sure if you go up to the top and then i mean that would be one way oh that's true that's yes <laughs> you need on the top a handrail all the way around it uh-huh. and and one of them um one of them grab nets just in case you've accidentally on purpose missed the handrail but see now we're strapping uh, things back onto the side barry it doesn't work with the facade it's that's true anti-gravity thrusters on the side so anybody who does fall off gets automatically and gently put back onto the top um it's in again you you sort of look at some of the um that sort of that that sort of piece um and the fact that it's got then these nice and shiny sides i think it's again going back to the idea that it's going to be this it's going to be a statement piece isn't it it's going to be a um a catalyst for doing hopefully good things i mean i recognize you know a lot of my comments so far have been very put down um or or very challenging shall we say of of, of the thing but i think fundamentally um having this sort of um structure here will allow us as human factor factors practitioners to go in and try and address some of these problems because we haven't really had to do it anywhere else um in the same sort of way and keep trying to keep an aesthetic which i think will be quite good fun yeah, let's let's talk about that aesthetic because I think it plays into some larger questions. There's sort of this whole piece of environmental design, right? There's sort of um if you imagine a, a skyscraper that's stretched for however many miles it is, 60 miles or something like that. It's going to be rather sterile unless you sort of include elements from outside and it seems like this is part of the plan. But you need to have enough of it, uh, we were just discussing in the post show how I don't get out and um, <laughs> I need some sunlight in my life. Is that because uh, you know I don't have a, a windows that face the sun or anything like that <laughs> that makes it easier to do that? Um, and so, so you need to incorporate some nature into it, and I think they are right. It sounds like they're going to be able to grow things uh, within this community. They're going to have greenery um, that they'll hopefully be able to sustain. I think. Um, th- that's important, not only for, uh, I don't know, mental well-being, but it's also important for physical well-being too, because okay. as you're walking, you're, they're directly related. And so as you're walking around, you can smell the flora and, uh, you know, it really just be part of it, it part of nature. And I think they, they're kind of focusing on it being part of nature as sort of this central, um, premise because on the other side of that wall so to speak of the i'm, I'm thinking if you're inside and you're looking on the other side of the wall probably oh, yeah, where all the windows are you have desert mm-hmm. and it's it's a beautiful desert and you have the ocean right by the desert and it's looks stunning and beautiful and so i don't think we're going to have that issue of being away from nature but it is something that you need to incorporate into your design do you have sort of a observation deck where maybe you know it, it extends out to the walls and you can kind of get that natural sunlight in does it breathe a little bit um and from from a design perspective i don't know where do you want to go next there's a couple extra points that we have on here i feel like we've hit a lot of them but what else 
I think we have. I think there's, there's there is that element for me around um, when it say when they say, and I didn't don't know whether we mentioned it in the, uh, the actual thing, but they're, they're sort of saying around you shouldn't need to move more than sort of five was five meters or five minutes away from any one point to be able to access everything you need. Um, and you're like, right, that's great. Um, but as what you just said, which is kind of trigger, trigger my thought. We we're already in the middle of a, an obesity obesity epidemic, um, and then all we're in doing is encouraging people not to move more than sort of five meters in any given direction. Um, how do we encourage people to get outside? We're in a we're in a desert, um, and you know you're going to have to have a certain amount of protection uh, to be able to go out into the sun um, and, and that type of thing. So we need to think about how people not only live within this the, within the line within the city but how do then we interact with the rest of uh noel uh the the, the rest of the because the whole region is going to be this experimental place where they try and bring in new technologies so how but but then all the pictures show are just uh the barren featureless desert with the line in the middle so where where's all the new technology going <laughs> where's all that um, how do you get it all there how do you get it all there too that's another logistical nightmare yeah. of the building materials but you know what it really reminds me of read in the way that they're talking about it them i think that i think the people who've really thought about this have been watching black panther <laughs> and yeah, there you go and you've basically got this place where you look at and until you pass the barrier um you know you, you're in this you're in the uh, uh you're in the jungle until you pass the barrier and then suddenly you're in wakanda and um and you, you're in a very technolo high technology te technological place um in the desert yeah yeah, it tracks. It so, tracks. Yeah, so I, which I, again, I'm a massive fan of. I think if we can get through some of these challenges, I think it will be brilliant. Yeah, I, I'll just mention one more thing here. As uh, you know, the, one of the things stated in the article is, in order to change business as usual, the city's design will be completely digitized, and the construction industrialized to a large degree by significantly advancing construction technologies and manufacturing processes, um, and and Basically, what that tells me is that maybe they're not necessarily thinking about this as something realistic that they're really going to build. But hypothetically speaking, if people like you and I were to get together and talk about all these issues before we even build it, is there some other solution that we can come up with before we've sort of in, started to build this thing and run into all these issues? Right. And I think that's part of this experiment is to really start thinking about where is the future in terms of how we live, how we interact with communities, how we incorporate technology into our everyday. And so that to me is kind of the biggest point that I want to draw home. This this is this leaving me with hope. Uh, this is a very cool, positive story. Yes, we doomed a lot of, about a lot of the stuff in here. <laughs> But I think it's it's a good exercise for us to start thinking about the future and where we might be able to impact these planned societies, right? And you said you didn't even touch on Mars, but yeah, I, I was going to yeah bring, uh, bring that up <laughs> because the we as you quite rightly say maybe uh, this is all a bit radical, but actually most of the stuff that they're talking about here we are going to have to deal with and have answers to according to the people who want to do it actually in fairly short order because missions to mars are going out there and they're going to have to deal with a lot of these issues how do we live sustainably on a 
in a, a in a hostile environment, which effectively a desert um, is, be that a, a hot desert or a cold desert, it's a it's a, it's a hostile environment to us, us as humans. How do we live there? So this could either this could lead into better um, research before we even get to Mars in order to be able to colonize um, and then beyond. Or the other way around, actually, if we get to Mars first, that could help us deliver some of this. Yeah, agree. Well, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic, and thank you to our friends over at Neom for our new story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups in our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories and much more. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Uh, during this time, we usually tell you a little bit about some other stuff we got going on. We have a website with a bunch of fun stuff over there. We got detailed show notes, including links to any of the guests that were on that week, uh, embedded YouTube videos, so you can see our handsome faces, I guess. I don't know. Uh, that's that's very vain. Um you can see Barry's handsome face. Uh, if you're regularly an audio listener, maybe check that out. We have news roundups. Like I said earlier, we do news roundups. That is a resource that we provide for the Human Factors community. You can check those out right there. We post them in our Discord uh, every Tuesday. You can find those. That's how we source our stories for the show. Uh, additional info on guests, ways to submit your own stories. If you found a piece of uh, Human Factors news that you want to share with us, you can search through all of our episodes for any specific topic that you're interested in, maybe uh, city planning or AI or anything like that. Check it out. Uh, conference recaps are on there, too. Uh, if it's been a minute since you've checked out our website, please go take a look at humanfactorscast.media. All right. I think I've talked enough. Let's get into this last part of the show we like to call. It came from. It came from. That's right. This is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics that the community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're watching or listening to help other people find this stuff. It's really helpful. All right. We have three tonight. This first one up here is by Jasmine Tiger 720 on the UX research subreddit. Uh, this is uh, about manager hiring unqualified UX researchers. I work in a large-ish team, including UX designers, UX researchers, a major tech company. Joined almost four years ago as a new grad, and I've spent a significant portion of time mentoring students on how to break into UX. My manager has been hiring folks who are not qualified as researchers, but work at our company in various roles and want to try UX research. Essentially, she's letting them temporarily transfer to our team and work on projects as if they were researchers. However, they don't have a relevant degree, past experience, and their UX skills are limited. Their lack of knowledge and experience means the rest of the team has to pick up their slack and spend time teaching them a lot of basics 
as a trained interviewer. And after reviewing dozens of portfolios, I'm confident these people wouldn't pass the hiring bar if they were applying from outside the company. I also appreciate how difficult it is to get into UX, especially at a large tech company. And it annoys me that we are passing over qualified candidates for people my manager has bonded with. It also degrades the quality of our work our team produces, and therefore the trust and relationships we have with our partners. I'm also irritated that I now have to spend extra time coaching someone who didn't take the initiative to learn or even take a boot camp or online class and champion their work with a smile on my face. Wondering what other people's thoughts are. Am I being unfair? Has anyone seen this before? Barry, have you seen this before? I am that person. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the reason the I expected the um this is a difficult one because obviously here we, we we're seeing one side of the um one side of the argument um if take everything at face value that this one been that that has been written yes there must be um it doesn't it just doesn't feel right it doesn't there if you've got people begging at the door to come and do a good job and, and everything else being equal this this isn't right it's it's not there however comment there is my guess would be that they must have some other experiences within either, you know, the maybe within the wider company that is valuable to this team in some way. Um, and th this is me trying to be be nice and kind. Um, the, the fact they might be bringing in something else just because then it's not directly analogous to um, UX in any way. Um, there might be some other bits that they're bringing value in. I guess, and the reason why I said that, that that's me in that in that respect is I don't have a uh, a traditional um, HF UX background. My background is engineering. My background is uh, is military, but I've still got the. I guess it's as I've got more experience, I've got the ability to know what I am good at and what I'm not good at, and therefore I can go into a new team in an HF role, doing what I do. But you know, yes, I've got both. Um, more years experience than I care to admit, but I didn't always have that. You know, I, I, I was lucky. I got a break early on where I, I started off as a software engineer and I got a break where I could go and do cockpit design. I could go and do, do basically what is now, um, UX, uh, design and, and, and the research element, um, uh, before it was trendy, um, and, and get them and build up that experience. So, if it is as just stated, I think clearly there's something wrong. Um, but I'd like to think that there's something more in the background. Uh, Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I have in my notes very strong language. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to take the, I'm gonna thread the needle between these two perspectives, right? Um, because from this perspective, somebody on the inside feeling like they have to do a lot of work to make up the slack for other people, that's not right. Yeah. Uh, and and so even even if these people have some experience from another domain or, or, you know, responsibilities. I think even bringing those into the space, you should probably have some basic knowledge of what's going on, even if it's, you know, uh, even if it's a condition for you being hired in that spot, like, hey, we're going to give you this, but, you know, maybe take a course. And that's kind of the prerequisite training that you need to jump into that role. This is a big tech company. And so there's nothing wrong with hiring your buddies. In fact, that is how I've got a lot of my jobs. And I'm sure that's how a lot of people listening have got their jobs is people hiring their buddies, tell them about it and they're in. And that's fine. It's all about the connections. But 
there's also sort of a baseline that we need to establish in the sense that, yeah, if, if you're hiring people that are unqualified, maybe take one from that pile and one from the qualified pile. So that way there's not, you know, as much work that this one person has to do. My recommendation here is either look elsewhere <laughs> or, or, uh, probably the more sensible approach is try to try to change the process internally um, or mention these things to your boss as concerns. I think that is probably um, the best way to go, uh, especially if they're hiring internally, then I mean, they're probably not going to get rid of you because you've been there for four years. And really, if you're if you're the one that's pulling the weight, then they'll see how much they miss you if they take you out. Anyway, that's my thoughts. Uh, any other last notes there? No, I think that that's covered about the covered, covered the spectrum, hasn't it? That's it. All right, let's uh, let's get into this next one here. This is by the Quantum Lady on the UX Research subreddit. Uh, where to discuss minutiae of daily work with more experienced colleagues in the industry? There's no UXers at my company. They go on to write, "I there's a lot of opportunity to solve uh, problems at my organization, but there's no senior leadership with UX knowledge I can bounce ideas off of. I don't mean whether or not I should do a certain study or." being able to ask small clarifying questions along the way, um, or, or sorry, but being able to ask small clarifying questions along the way to make sure I'm making the right choices or following industry standard processes. Uh, like, am I wording the survey questions well? Am I missing any steps in this process? What if I tried XYZ, those types of things. I'm currently building up my portfolio to apply to a new job, so I want to make sure things are done right or best as I can rather than scrambling to fix things in retrospect. Are there any communities for this, uh, any mentorship opportunities I can say, seek? Barry, what what are your thoughts on this? If only we knew of some sort of, I don't know, digital lab or something, but um, I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll get to that. Um it doesn't say that if you're in the whereabouts in the world you are, but I'm guessing US. But if you're having to be in the UK with this problem, then being part of the Chat Institute of Economics Consumer Factors, there is a um, communities board up there, a digital communities board that is is great for this sort of thing. You can we've got such a tight community, and by tight I mean a, um, a friendly, helpful uh, community that um, you're quite happy to put um, either big problems or little problems or opinions in there and people will respond and things like that um but one of the things i do like is oh this is this is something i miss so i have worked in large teams and i've worked in on my own in as a consultant in in other organizations and there is a certain amount of brilliance being part of a larger team and it's one of these things that if you're part of one you don't realize just what a good thing you've got until you don't have it anymore um and so one of my last roles i was part of a very large team comparatively large team com compared to what um others we worked in and even though i was possibly one of the more senior people in in that team i still like being able to just go into a meeting and say right you know what i'm going to do i don't know i'm going to do this i'm going to do by a card sort followed by a um a focus group has anybody else got any better ideas um because you can bounce ideas off and hopefully nobody's so precious about, about things that we can share ideas and things like that. And I find that more, or I find that easier to do in the human factors uh, UX community than anywhere else. We've, we less, we tend to be less precious. Um, and that doesn't really come to home until you then go and work, work solo. So a role, one of the projects I'm working on at the moment, I am 
the HF lead. I am it. And people are coming to me for questions. And and so I'm sort of coming back with my best answer. But you do sort of miss that ability to sort of go, well, I think this. Do you think that's a good idea? Do you think that's right? And so that's where I I go and look at some of the online forums and, and things like that. Closed ones generally, because you don't necessarily want to chuck that sort of stuff out on Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, because some people don't realize that we can have that sort of open discussion. Um mm -hmm. What about you, Nick? Where, where else would where where would you go to go and um, um, have ideas and and test them out? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this in terms of uh, ease. So one, you could uh, you could join our Discord. That we have we have plenty of human factors professionals in there. You can come and chat with us about some of these questions. I, I encourage anyone listening to join it and and ask these types of questions because these are great. Like these one offs. Hey, thinking about doing X Y Z. Anyone have any other opinions? I'm hoping to have that exact experience, Barry, that you described where somebody else goes, yeah, what about this in that in that community? So that's probably the easiest thing you could do. Second easiest thing you could do, maybe join a mentorship circle. There are plenty of other resources out there. Um, so ADP list is one. I'm actually a mentor on that platform, full disclosure. Uh, don't get paid for it. It's completely volunteer work. So it's not like I'm making anything from mentioning that. Um, and, and so it's all volunteer. You have these people who are eager to share knowledge and you have people who want to learn knowledge and it's at all different levels. You could be entry level asking a senior level, or you could be senior level asking management. You could be management asking management or management asking CEO. There's a bunch of different levels in there that you can, uh, sort of ask for advice on. And so keep that in mind. The third Probably the hardest thing I would say is go to conferences. That is where you can make those types of connections, especially if you're sort of in a drought in your current position. There might be those those sort of folks who can, I guess, um, you can you can make those connections and and reach out to them as a mentor after the conference is over and build those connections over time. So that way, hey, you you're looking for work? You want to come work with me? That's that's sort of the other goal there. Um, any other thoughts on that one, Barry, before we get into this last one? Yeah, I think the the membership point just reinforced that one. There is, there's loads of different membership community, uh, mentorship communities. Um, or even if you just know somebody senior um, who's maybe got a bit more experience and you just most people are quite willing to to support in, in that respect or point you in the in the right direction of doing it. Um, as Nick has said, you know, the Discord is is there. And I think most of us would be more than happy to um um, support um, anybody new, new, uh, new into the industry because it's in our own benefit as well because for the for the wider um, community. So it, whilst it might feel like it's a bit selfless and things like that, it's actually, you could argue it's a bit selfish because we want to make sure that our uh, um, our discipline um, grows and, and gets better. And we can only do that with new, with, with new blood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's get into this last one. Uh, this is on the user experience subreddit by... Ziminter, we'll say that. What is the most interesting UX problem or solution you have worked on? The web is flooded with pretty dribble mockups that solve imaginary problems. I've been keen to hear something. I'd be keen to hear something you have actually worked on that you felt was exciting, challenging, engaging. What was the industry, the issue, and how did you approach it? Was it a success or did it not work out in the end? Barry, oh. what is the most exciting, interesting problem or solution that you've ever worked on? combine that with the one I can actually talk about. Um, so most people, and if you listened before, you'll know that I, generally I, I work in the defense domain. So that does put certain limits on what we talk about. However, one of the most challenging but rewarding ones was 
probably one I worked on about 15 years ago, and we don't even have the platform anymore. So it worked on the Harrier Jump Jet. Um, it was brilliant. So what they were doing was putting a new piece of kit onto it into an already aging platform, which has got loads of kit in it already, a really crowded cockpit. Um, and you wanted this new bit, new bit of kit in there. There were some real interesting nuances with monochrome color and full color not being able to be on the same screen at the same time. Or you've already got the what we call the HOTAS, the hands-off throttle and stick, because you don't pilots taking the hands off the throttle and the stick when because that gets all a bit dangerous. Um, but you've already got if you've if you've seen any good any games, um, so you can already see that they yeah, we have mock-ups of these now for, for gaming where you've got lots of what they call hats and buttons and switches and all that. And these were already very, very crowded, but I had to get into a mode to be able to use this other bit of kit, this new bit of kit. Um and to try and do that, it not only got me working with um, pilots and, and crew and things like that about what they could do, what their mental workload was like, et cetera, et cetera. But also I had to talk to the engineers in de in detail about just what switches and what combinations of switches. It's almost like doing the sort of, sort of like control or delete to try and get into a certain function and pressing F10 at the same time. Um, but with, um, with these things and making sure that you know, going down to the level of well, is it on the um, is it on when you talk about the the, the signal of of a switch being set? Is it on the uh, leading edge or the trailing edge? And having to get down to that minutiae of detail of making sure that you didn't accidentally let something else off that might I don't know let a weapon off or something because that's a bad day in the office if you accidentally do that. And what it was, it, I spent about four years of my life doing that and um throughout the entire system and i took it all the way from kind of concept um uh, so i joined it mid concept stage all the way through to testing and it was intense um there was some really late nights there was because it was also it was uh, multi-company as well so there was loads of we were trying to do things in new ways and and it was a success in the, success in the end um we had some really really great trials feedback and some of the more um, innovative ways ways we we had of doing things was really really cool that involved lots of physical work so use of simulators as well as scribbling in books or trying to get logic problems and and all that sort of stuff so it was brilliant i had a great team working for me at the time um and i think that is one of these one of the problems i keep on going back to time and time again because i just i thoroughly enjoyed it it was probably the biggest project i'd worked on today and it was fab <sighs> nick what about you <laughs> You know, when I put this question in, it was the shortest question, but I knew it would have the longest answer. <laughs> so <laughs> for me also, uh, the application is classified, but uh, I'll talk around it. Uh, and so essentially the, the problem that I worked on, there were hundreds of documented tools used for various processes within a complex workflow involving multiple operators. And so uh, the, the solution was to unify all these in one central interface. And again, I can't go into so many of the details, but really trying to solve a problem that massive of trying to combine so many tools into one interface was just a, a wonderful uh, experience to try to work on because you had everybody at the table from every tool kind of represented of like what they needed and how the sort of UX of it all uh, played in together to make it seem unified, even though behind the scenes it was kind of clunky and disjointed. And uh, but you know, optimizing for workflows across tools was uh, you know sort of the the most interesting piece of that. All right, uh, we're almost at time, so let's get into one more thing. 
needs no introduction. Barry, what is your one more thing this week? So this week, it's a, I guess it's a bit of a boring one, actually, not too dissimilar to what we've just been talking about, is I've, I went into a new domain uh, at the back end of last week, so into fintech, uh, so the financial technology stuff, and ran a workshop, I was part of a workshop where the this client was one, so I run discovery workshops where we try and break down what currently exists, which, you know, um, and generally do that with walkthroughs and et cetera, et cetera. So I ran that um, and had a really, really good session, but... Normally, you, I go into these sessions and, and you've got either an idea of the software or the hardware or whatever it is they're using. But this, in terms of being fintech, was um, was was really, really interesting. It was in a, a whole domain that I hadn't really considered before. Um, and he was talking about big stuff like buying and selling businesses and things like this. And you're like, wow, that was so interesting. And it, I came out of that. I mean, it was an all-day workshop. But I was thoroughly exhausted because mentally exhausted, more so than I usually. I'm normally quite tired when I when I finish these things anyway, because I think if you're doing them properly, you do have to put a lot of effort into get, getting as much out of everybody, keep everybody motivated and things like that. But this was just another level, but thoroughly, thoroughly interesting at the same time. I had no idea about half the stuff out there, um, and so it just it, I just thought it was brilliant that we can take again human factors tools, techniques, and, and what we do and put ourselves in a completely new environment um, and still make people believe I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it was yeah. brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. What about I, you, I hear you. Uh, I, this is going to be a cry for help. Uh, I have become a politics junkie more than probably I have been in the past uh these last couple weeks have just been insane in u.s politics um i've been keeping track of almost minute by minute legislation that's passing uh any updates on the passing of that legislation uh, any polls that are coming out any primary results again minute by minute looking at counties in states that i've never been to have no idea about but understand their significance and what it means uh for one party versus another um, I'm also following a lot of the political news story, you know, minute by minute, what is going on with the raid? They call it a raid. It was a, it was a legal search and seizure of classified materials. <laughs> like, so I'm, I am following all these things very closely. Like even after we're done with this podcast, I'm going to go look up, you know, what I've missed in the last two hours because man, we're in primary season, which means there is uh we're, we're picking the best people for who we want to run against uh the other people um and it's uh i'm i'm a politics junkie but this has been sort of on another level and i feel like it's a little unhealthy and i don't know how to stop i don't know how to stop but that just means we got to stop the show for today that's it for today everyone if you like this episode and uh enjoy some of the discussion maybe around city planning i'll encourage you to go listen to episode 212 to talk about how does speed affect transportation planning comment wherever you're listening with what you think of this news story this week for more in-depth discussion you can always join us on our discord community visit our official website stay uh, sign up for our newsletter stay up to date with all the latest human factors news if you like what you hear you want to support the show there's a couple things you can do one you can do it right now leave us a five-star review it really helps the show helps other people find the show lets them know that it's quality content maybe i don't know questionable uh anyway to second point tell your friends about us we really grow by word of mouth probably more than reviews. So 
you know, let let your neighbor, let your human factors mentor know about us. <laughs> and three, if you have the financial means, you can always consider supporting us on Patreon. We do have some goodies in there for you and we'll give them back. Uh, so as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about living in the future? You can find me on social media at Basil underscore K, or if you want to hear interviews uh, one-to-one with various human factors personalities, find me on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord, one more plug for that, and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.